from Shakespeare's Othello. It is the last speech of Othello. He has killed Desdemona. From savage passion, no. Othello came from a culture as great as that of ancient Venice. He came from an Africa of equal stature. And he felt he was betrayed, his honor was betrayed, and his human dignity was betrayed. And so when they come for him from Venice, he speaks and says, Soft you, a word or two before you go. I have done the state some service, and they know it. No more of that. I pray you in your letters, when you shall these unlucky deeds relate, Speak of me as I am, nothing extenuate, nor set down aught in malice. That was the voice of Paul Robeson at New York's Carnegie Hall on May 9th, 1958. The great African-American actor, singer, and political activist was doing many recordings and concerts all around the country in the mid-1950s, still waiting for his U.S. passport to be returned by the government so that he could once again travel the world and perform for international audiences that flocked to see his concerts and speeches in the years before the rise of McCarthyism had resulted in him being blacklisted and banned from doing much of the work he wanted to do in the world. A few months after this concert, however, Robeson would learn that a U.S. Supreme Court decision had overturned the ability of the government to withhold international travel from citizens for their political beliefs, and he and his wife would leave for England to perform as Othello once again at Stratford-on-Avon, England, as he had almost two decades before on Broadway. He would not return again to America for five years. On my journey now, on Zion, my journey now, on Zion, I wouldn't take nothing, on Zion, for my journey now, on Zion, one day, one day, I was walking along, well, the elements opened. Welcome once again to Adventures in Theater History. It is July 2022 as I record this, and we're doing another special summer edition of the show. In fact, Chris Colucci is on a well-deserved vacation, so I'm flying solo today. Although, as usual, our opening and ending theme music is composed by Chris. All the sound editing here and the engineering has been done by yours truly. So, if you notice a bit of a fall-off in the sound quality of this particular episode, that should explain that, but I'm doing my very level best to wrangle things, and I promise not to skimp at all on the content. And we're trying another thing that's quite different for us. Uh, we're traveling, too. Not far, but just making an on-site visit to a local Philadelphia institution with particular resonance for American theater history and the life story of Paul Robeson. 
So this is a different type of sound experience we're offering, and if it goes well, we can do more. I'm kind of excited, actually. Now, notice I didn't say Philadelphia theater history because Paul Robeson did not perform at this site that we're going to visit or, in fact, do anything there to attract public attention at all. I'll explain that in a minute. Paul Robeson did perform on Philadelphia stages earlier in his lifetime, in the spring of 1924, as a young man. When he was just starting out as an actor, he came down from New York City for one week to play at the new Dunbar Theater on the corner of Broad and Lombard Streets. Robeson was in a show billed as a sensational rural southern comedy drama called Roseanne. Also in the show was the great actress Rose McClendon. Paul Robeson was also preparing at that time to star in two Eugene O'Neill dramas when he returned back to New York, All's Got Chillin' Got Wings and The Emperor Jones. In fact, after those two shows had helped rocket Robeson to the top of the theater world's attention and made him a major figure in the culture of the Harlem Renaissance, he came back to Philadelphia later that same year. In November 1924, he did a special one-show performance of The Emperor Jones at the Walnut Street Theater, where the foil character of the Englishman in the play named Smithers was played by the Hedgerow Theaters, Jasper Dieter himself. After that, Robeson did not return much to Philadelphia. In fact, from 1928 to 1939, he was mostly living in London and acting and singing all over the world, including his famous show-stopping turn singing Old Man River in a revival of the Jerome Kern musical Showboat, both in London and New York. By this point, he was one of the most famous people in the world and had become fluent in multiple languages, well known for featuring both Negro spirituals and the folk songs of many nations in his concert repertoire. But when the outbreak of the Second World War brought him back to his home country, he thought it was important to once again investigate and celebrate American folk music and joined the company of a musical called John Henry about the mythical steel-driving man. Now, there is no extant cast recording of that show's score, but here's Robeson singing the well-known folk song just a few years later in a really dynamite blues recording. John Henry told his captain that a man ain't nothing but a man and before I let that steam feel be in a backstage interview in December of 1939 at the Erlanger Theater on Market Street in Philadelphia, Robeson told a newspaper reporter in an interview he had turned down ten scripts in favor of this musical, quote, it is the sort of thing that will pave the way for a Negro theater that someday will rank with the greatest in the world, one just as truly a part of the nation as the Comédie Française or the Moscow Art Theater. Close quote. Paul Robeson starred in the title role of this mythical railroad worker who, quote, died with his hammer in his hand, along with a 60-member ensemble of African-American actors. In fact, the only white member in the company was Alexander Gray, Philadelphia-born actor. 
The performances of John Henry in Philadelphia met with very encouraging reception. However, when the show opened at the 44th Street Theater on Broadway in January of 1940, it was not well-received by New York critics and ran for only five nights. Uh, apparently, Robeson's wife, Eslanda, always had her doubts about the play and felt the character he was doing emphasized the black man's physical life over his intellectual development, as he may have been secretly relieved when the show closed. In 1942, Robeson came back to Philly and its Locust Street Theater with Uta Hagen and Jose Ferrer in the pre-Broadway tour of the great production of Othello, the first major commercial production of the play to feature a black actor in the role with a white supporting cast. It was a sensation, both here in Philadelphia and in its long subsequent run on Broadway, setting a standard that maybe has never been surpassed. It is the cause. It is the cause, my soul. Let me not name it to you, you chaste stars. It is the cause. Yet I'll not shed her blood, nor scar that whiter skin of hers than snow, and smooth as monumental alabaster. Yet she must die, else she'll betray more men. Put out the light. During the rest of the 1940s and 50s, Robeson would occasionally visit Philadelphia, although as far as I can tell, he didn't do any more plays here. Sometimes he would come to do concerts, either at the Metropolitan Opera on North Broad or at the outdoor Robin Hood Dell Auditorium in Fairmount Park. But mostly... He would come to Philly to drop by in on the home of his sister, Marion Forsyth, a public school teacher who lived in a pleasant row home on the corner of Walnut and 50th Street in West Philadelphia. It was to this home that Robeson arrived in 1966 to live with Marion once again as they had when they were children together growing up in New Jersey. Essie, by this point, had passed away, as had Marion's husband. Paul Robeson was now 68 years old and was suffering from many indignities of age and ill health, as well as the continued persecution and surveillance from the FBI. He didn't feel up to being the public Paul Robeson anymore. He just wanted to rest and live quietly in retirement. And for the next 10 years, that's what he did, residing in the Walnut Hill neighborhood with Marion until his death in January of 1976. To take the story from there, let's now listen to a conversation I recently had with Janice Sykes-Ross, who is the director of the West Philadelphia Cultural Alliance, an organization which currently owns and runs the Paul Robeson House and Museum, now on the National Register of Historic Places. Thank you so much for agreeing to speak with us. Thank you, Peter. Thank you for having me. And oh. thank you to all of you that's listening in. So let's begin by talking about the organization. Um, as I understand it, that the West Philadelphia Cultural Alliance was founded by Francis P. Alston, 
1984. But the group immediately found sort of a new impetus and purpose after a very famous and very horrific event in West Philadelphia history, which doesn't seem connected to the arts at all, at least initially. But could you tell us of that story and how it led to the shaping of the West Philadelphia Cultural Alliance's mission? Yeah, sure. So a year later, it's when the move bomb happened, right? Mm -hmm right here in West Philadelphia. And most of us, like myself, was, was young, weren't in Philly, but you heard about this all over the world, right. about how a bomb was dropped into a city neighborhood. And so when that happened, there was just an explosion of emotion, there were rioting, there was all kinds of things that, that went on um, during that time. And Francis Austin being right here in the heart of it, along with 50 other community organizations, decided to put on a week-long art conference and festival to quell the city. What can we do? How can we divert some of this tension, this energy, this negativity that's going out around the world about Philadelphia. And so they put on this event and it was music and artists and dancing and performances. It was just wonderful. And it really, the purpose of WPCA came to life. And they said, from now on, this is really going to be our mission as this organization. And so part of our mission is working with these community organizations. And we've got about 50 other organizations that we work with to make sure that we use artistic formats, artistic expression to bring about social justice and change. That's wonderful. Thank you. But the, but the WPCA involvement with the Robeson House came later than that. Uh, and later than that, right? Yeah, when and how did the Paul Robeson House become part of the WPCA? So probably almost 10 years later in the early 90s, Francis discovered that this house that we're in... You're speaking from it right now, I should say. You're, you're sitting... Yeah, yeah, I'm right here in yeah. the house. Um, became available. It was uh, it was taken over by the city. It was in a dilapidated state. It was probably going to be torn down. We probably would be sitting in the parking lot or something. Right, like that, I noticed the house right across the corner was an empty lot until recently across until the street. Recently, oh, right, right, right. Now it's been, now there's a brand new apartment building going up, but it was a just a vacant lot for decades. So right away, Francis, being Francis, um, got together with the board, the committees. And they got the money together and purchased this house and then turned it into what is now the museum. And the legacy of Robeson mirrored so much with the mission of what WPCA stands for, that right. it, it only made sense that right. we would use his legacy, his life, his philosophy to right. really further well, he, he was a person of you know, international stature. You're bringing in a lot of credibility and a lot of positive energy right there. But he isn't usually thought of as a Philadelphia person. A lot of people are surprised, I think, I bet even now when you say, oh, yeah, Paul Robeson's house is here. And they go, in Philadelphia? I'm sure, <laughs> I'm sure you get that a lot. Since he grew up in Princeton, New Jersey and in Somerville, New Jersey, and he lived most of his adult life uh, during his peak years in New York and London and even Moscow. But his family has deep Philadelphia roots. Is that right? That's right. His sister lived here. And most right. people don't realize that Robeson lost his mother at a very early age. 
So there were four, four of them and five with his sister. Four, so there's brothers and then his sister and who was the only girl. So you can imagine that his sister took on the sister mother role. Right. Um, since he so she was only a couple of years older than him. She was yeah. only a few years older, but yeah. I'm sure he looked at her as this mother figure. And so it made sense that as, you know, he became more withdrawn in a retirement kind of state, his wife had passed, that he comes to Philadelphia to live with his sister. But even before that, his mother was a bustle, right? Right. His mother was a bustle. His mother died when he was like six years old. Mm -hmm. So even before that, the bustle family is has deep roots here in Philadelphia. So he had a lot of relatives. So right. he was in and out of Philly a lot. And, and his father w- went to Lincoln University as his after the Civil War. Right. His undergraduate and his doctor and his um, master's degree from Lincoln. Right. The fact that the the, the Philadelphia community in the 19th century was was a very important, I'm discovering, to the larger, in America at the time, was the largest and one of the best established African-American communities in the country. It was more important than New York at the time. So that, that makes a lot of sense. Um, so I toured uh, the museum half of the WPCA um, last week. It's, I should mention that it's a row house and like many Philadelphia uh, houses, it's, it's a twin. So it, there's two halves of one larger structure and um, the offices are in one half and then the corner half is uh, his sister's former house where the museum is. And I was impressed by the amount of historic displays and materials there about the life and work of Paul Robeson and also about his wife, Islanda, and other people uh, from the community. We'll, we'll describe those for listeners when I share the audio recording of my visit. Have all those displays been there right from the start? How, how long has it taken to accumulate all that material? Yeah, that's a good question. We were fortunate enough that in the transition of when uh, Fran Austin passed, that she had a good friend named Vernoka Michael. And Vernoka is actually not a blood relative, but she referred to Paul Robeson as Uncle Paul, and he called her niece. So she, she was so a child in the neighborhood when he was living. She was, yeah, she was a young adult. She was went from a child to a young adult right. in his presence, and they. She has very intimate stories that she will share of driving him around, and so they spent intimate time together. And a lot of the um, resources that we were able to have here in the house came not only from her memory, but came from her collection through her family, because the founders were very connected. The other half of it came through the curation of Charles Blossom. At Temple University. At Temple University, exactly. And so those are the those, that's what you find here. You find this real intimate look into Robeson's life, his history, his family, the neighborhood. But what is your what is your favorite display there in the museum? I know that just this morning you were helping to lead a tour there next door. So what do you when you t- lead people on a tour? Is there anything in particular which you always look forward to sharing with visitors? I love when I take them upstairs. I think they love the downstairs. They really just, and again, your listeners will can imagine this. And when we go upstairs and they see Paul Robeson's bedroom, they see the social justice room. And my favorite display is the theater room. Oh, good for you. <laughs> um, and because I think you really kind of get the incense of the history 
of not only the chron chronological history of Robeson, but you also feel the house and the movement. Yeah. And you feel his presence very strongly. Yeah. Uh, because the way that his room has been uh, restored. The, so the house has uh, recently, in recent years, been used for uh, something uh, you call the Arts in the Parlor series. You you host new and traditional music performances. You do some chamber concerts. You have spoken word events. But uh, it's hard to recreate theater performances, of course, and such an intimate space. But the front porch of the house, I noticed, has often where Paul Robeson himself used to sit back in the day and uh, watch the neighborhood go by, uh, sometimes serves as a sort of a public stage, doesn't it? It really does. And I think that's the beauty, not only of the community of West Philadelphia and what we try to do here in the West Philadelphia community, but it really does. This front porch is like a huge front porch that we sometimes will have performers out there. We participated in the um, Porch Fest event, which is converted. West Philadelphia. Maybe I'd never heard of that before. Yeah. yeah. Where people just have musicians and performers that are out on the porch. People are kind of sitting in the, on the sidewalk and just enjoying it. And we really uh, continue to be part of that kind of legacy. The Arts in the Parlor that you spoke about, Peter, is really a series that we had started right before the pandemic. And it really was a way of continuing the legacy of Robeson. When he was living there, he would be encouraged by his pianist and by his sister and by his friends to sing. They didn't want him to lose his, his vocal cords, the, the tonality of his voice, right? So well, they would- the joy of it, because obviously he was, he was yeah. very depressed in his final years, as I understand. So I'm sure it gave him a lot of joy to be- able A to lot of joy. Yeah. And then what would happen is he would start, let's say a Sunday afternoon, uh, uh, she would start playing for him and he would start singing. And then this transformation would happen. And all, all of a sudden you might see neighbors gathering on the porch and it's like Robeson is singing. And so we try to create that with arts in the parlor. You know, there's some singing that's going on in the house. There's different art forms that are happening in the house. You, you mentioned this briefly um, about the pandemic. For many arts and community organizations, the recent pandemic was a real challenge. Yeah. And it must have been a real challenge for the Paul Robeson house. But you used it as an opportunity for a different type of engagement. How have you adapted and reimagined the experience of the Paul Robeson house for the digital age? Has this really been sort of a a transformation of the whole mission of the of the institution. It has. I mean, we had to do what so many others had to do is we had to pivot and we really had to find another way to open our doors without them physically being open. So how do you do that, right? The physical house is, right. is really what people come to see. It's a museum. But I think by using technology, by using technology like Zoom and, and other ways to connect, not only did it allow our audience to follow us and still be connected, but it also opened us up to an international audience that we now have the pleasure of being connected to because Robeson himself was very international. So we have followers now in Australia, we have followers in India, we have followers in China. So it really has broadened our audience. Well, since we're a theater history podcast specifically, our listeners might be interested in knowing how the Paul Robeson House um, 
commemorates and continues to honor his work in plays and musicals uh, in his lifetime, and specifically in his work in African-American theater. Can you tell us about that, uh, some of what's there at the house? Yeah, so there's a room that we call the theater room. And what else would it be called? We have um, a docent program that we're starting right now, which we call our youth docent. And they're going to be doing reenactments and they're going to be doing characters that were part of Robeson's life or individuals that were part of Robeson's life. So we really con are continuing to foster that the theatrical side of things and really tap into that part of his legacy. Well, I'm glad that you, you mentioned um... The, the involvement of, of young people, the community. And I, I, I know that that's an important mission that you often have tours from high school groups and from you know, summer camp groups, et cetera. And it must be a revelation for some. I recently quizzed my own son. I have two sons. I recently quizzed one of my own sons about his knowledge of Paul Robeson complete blank. <laughs> and it, it would be something he would be interested in because he's interested in the arts. He's very interested in progressive politics. He was very interested to hear about Paul Robeson. I think in my own life, I remember I was first exposed to his story when I saw James Earl Jones did a one-man show, right, of Paul Robeson, and he came through St. Louis, where I uh, grew up, and uh, I remember going to see Paul Robeson, I mean, uh, James Earl Jones be Paul Robeson and do that, his whole life story. Uh, James Earl Jones had a cold, as I remember, he was always blowing his nose, which was a little apt, because as I understand, Paul Robeson was also susceptible to colds. <laughs> <laughs> and had a problem with it. And then we went backstage. My mother took me backstage to meet James Earl Jones, and uh, I got a signed program from him. And But after that, I remember finding some mm -hmm. records of Paul mm -hmm. Robeson, uh, the Ballad for Americans, and uh, uh, recording some of his concerts. And because I was interested in singing, and I had a low voice as well, I was interested in, you know, copying that huge sound. But as I say, I was dismayed to find out my son didn't really know anything about it. What is your experience of how young people, specifically in the West Philadelphia community, uh, draw inspiration and direction from the stories of Paul, and I should add, Eslanda Robeson as well? Oh, absolutely. We cannot talk about Paul Leroy Robeson without talking about Eslanda Good Cadoza Robeson, who was his wife, his manager, his confidant, his everything. Um, and that's a good question because typically, and Terry and I, who's one of our docents, we talk about this, how do we engage young people? How do we then connect them to what was happening then, what's happening now, the relevance of who he, he was in his life? And so I asked them, I said, think of, tell me, or think of the most famous person that you know of right now in the world. Who would you say is the most famous? And some would say Michael Jackson, and some would say um, the Backstreet Boys. Right, and Beyonce, say, Beyonce, uh, right. yeah. And they go through their whole list. And I say, okay, let's take Michael Jackson and let's, let's multiply Michael Jackson five times over or 10 times over. That's the fame of ropes. And then they, you like, the aha moment hits them like, wow, he was that famous. And imagine if someone like Michael Jackson, all of a sudden his art was taken away from him and he wasn't able to perform to the world or no one was able to listen to his music. What, how devastating would that be to your life? You're talking and about so what that, happened to Paul Robeson in the 1950s when exactly. his passport was full and he was, exactly. he was blacklisted and so forth, yeah. So forth. So right. it wasn't just that he wasn't able to travel because his passport was taken, but they also tried to erase him from history. 
Right. His records in sports were were erased from the record books, things like that. It's just uh, really astounding. Uh, so, but oh, one thing I did, I, in, in one of your videos, I, I remember seeing, I think it was a young lady who was an intern or something there at the house. She's featured in this uh, video and she starts sitting at a computer and she's got this smile on her face. She's talking about how she was really inspired by the story of Paul Robeson. She was, if he can do all those things, I can do things too. She said a, a path suddenly became clear to her. You could see the light sort of go on inside of her. And you must, are there any other examples of that that, that come to mind? I think that's it. I think once they've come through as young people, they really start to think about, you know, sports. There's so many different areas when you talk about who this man was and in areas that he was able to excel in. And I think they can relate them just like I did a tour this morning and there were two young boys there. And the mom kept saying, see, I tell you to excel in sports. And this is what a difference. And you feel like you're not making a difference, but it does make a difference. So I think we they walk away feeling like what I do in life, how I do it, I can really make a difference. I can. I have a statement. Right, and I, I I saw in one biography I was just reading that his father would when Paul would come home with like a ninety five on a test, his father would say, "Well, it's good. Why not do a hundred? Right. Why not? Why not do that? What happened to those other five points? Right. All right. That so, sounds like my mother. Yeah. Really. Yeah. Well, no pressure. Um, and so I'm sure I've, I've missed, uh, we've had a lovely conversation here, but I'm, I am sure I've missed uh, many things along the way. Is there anything else that you feel that we should definitely know about the history of the Paul Robeson house or about his uh, continuing legacy there in West Philadelphia? I would just say the legacy continues, the work continues. What he was doing back in the 40s and the 50s, unfortunately, and the 60s, it's just as relevant now, you know, the racism is still alive there is still much work to be done in this country there's still different ways that we can bring about change and awareness and so i would just say get engaged let's get engaged i don't think anybody has the i won't say the right but the luxury now to sit on the sidelines do something do anything that will make a difference well janice thank you so much for speaking with us today this has been a wonderful conversation and um, I look forward to uh, sharing the, spreading the word even more uh, about the, the work that you're doing there. Great. And I look forward to hearing from your audience. Thank you so much, Peter, for coming by. And thank you for your time. Previous to talking to Janice, as I mentioned in our conversation you just heard, I had already made a visit to the Paul Robeson house. My guide on this tour was Terry Fimiano Guerin, who, full disclosure, is a neighbor of mine, a former actress, director, and drama teacher at the Friends Central School in Philadelphia. I arrived at the house, and Terry met me there, and I could immediately see so many things about the place as I walked through it, which is not just a lifeless museum, like so many preserved homes of great men that you may have seen and taken tours of. The Paul Robeson House is a living and breathing place, a community resource. I could see, for instance, a collection of shiny modern trophies in the room downstairs, uh, which I later learned belonged to the neighborhood chess club, which meets there regularly. I don't include everything I saw there in this recording of the tour, as with my interview with Ms. Sykes-Ross, I have edited the recording down for concision and content and to 
take out some extraneous background noise, which occasionally happens on live tours. But on the whole, it was a fascinating experience. I'm so glad to be able to share it with you. This is how it sounded. We're here at the Paul Robeson House and Museum in West Philadelphia. It is a, one of the typical West Philadelphia row houses of the era. It's on the corner of the street, so it's got a nice front porch. I noticed the neighbors are uh, working on improving their mm -hmm. porch. It's very much part of the community still, and it is a simple family home. It's now been transformed into a museum. I'm standing in the main living room, the front room, and there are displays all around me. There's pictures, there's display cases, there's some uh, placards with the larger photographs of Paul Robeson, uh, pictures from his life starting from when he was a young athlete uh, in New Jersey and then going on to his time at uh, Rutgers. And then I can see photographs and pictures on the wall uh, from later in his career, as well as many books written about him. And there are also many pictures of his family, his sister and other family members. And of course, people who have been important to this particular institution. Terry, hello. Hello, thank you so much for coming. Oh, I'm thrilled to be here. Yeah. I'm here with Terry Fimiano Guerin, who is a guide and a, how would you describe docent. your? A docent yeah. at mm -hmm. the Paul Robeson House and Museum. Mm -hmm. And she has volunteered to lead me around today. And we're gonna do a little um, walking tour of the house and just explore what there is to see about a man who had many, many reasons for being well-known and talented, a great singer, actor, athlete, artist, uh, activist. But we're interested, of course, in his theater career and what remains behind here in this house where he spent his final years here in West Philadelphia. So uh, as we stand here in the front room, what would be the first thing you would point out to a visitor like myself? Well, I think I would try to encourage people to sort of feel the family-like warmth in this house. He um, did welcome some visitors and there was always, this is very interesting, we like to tell our guests, there was always an FBI truck right outside no this kidding. window. Yes, wow. always, keeping, keeping an eye on him. And who was coming and going. That was another thing that was very, very important. And this was long And after they weren't the, hiding it at all. They're no, just like, we're no, keeping an eye on car, you. Yeah. Right. And this was long after the HUAC hearings. So that's, here's the living room. This is where he celebrated his 75th birthday, right oh. here, um, with some guests. And that was a party in this, in this house. He used to sit on the porch, I've been told. Right. So what, life. again, let me just, once more, before we leave this room, what would you point out in particular? What would we, if you, well, first thing think, you'd show someone? I, I, I think these, Photographs of Eslanda, I think if Paul Robeson is such a, in, a giant of a man, mm -hmm. literally and figuratively, that we don't know a lot or we don't talk often about Eslanda. Eslanda um, was the first, not just the first woman, but the first African-American to head a pathology lab in Columbia University Hospital. Okay. And that is where they met, right. because Paul went to Columbia University Law, Law School. School. Right. Yeah. And so there's many, I'm just, for the listener, I'm pointing, there's many photographs here, mm -hmm. just inside the front walls, inside the front entrance of, uh, of Essie at mm -hmm. various times in her life, mm -hmm. to make it clear that she was an important part of mm -hmm. his uh, And she life. did, she also wrote a book about him. Right, we're moving over to his place case over yeah. here to see that book. Uh -huh. there's, there's a book here, Stories from the Paul Robeson House, okay. which is first-person account. Um, 
one of our docents, it was an old, old friend of the family and actually called Paul Robeson uncle. Right. Um, Vernoka is her name. There's a biography that's just been re-released by about Eslanda, which is it's fascinating. Her life is so. We're looking at a display case of books. That are, some of them are biographies of Paul Robeson. Some of them are by Paul Robeson. Mm -hmm. uh, and there's one. There's I see books called No Way But This. Mm -hmm. Paul Robeson. No one can silence mm -hmm. me. Right. The book um, No Way But This is a, a, a book by an Australian journalist, mm -hmm. and he was so loved in Australia, he was loved all over the world, sure. and um, he retraced Paul Robeson's steps, so he went from Princeton to Summerfield to Harlem, Connecticut, but he also went, the, the author also went to Moscow and Madrid and, and Wales, right. where the, and he never came to Philadelphia. So right. after I finished the book, I wrote to him and yeah. I thought, I'll just try this. Please, I said, please come to Philadelphia. Please come and see the house. Right. And uh, he wrote back right away. It was very nice. He said, I don't know when I'll ever be there, but I'll be sure yeah. to visit. So it's missing a chapter, as I'll say. Exactly. Well, that, this display case is, is um, topped by a, it looks like a quote from Paul Robeson. Mm -hmm. It says, in my music, my plays, my films, I want to carry always this central idea to be African, mm -hmm. uh, and above mm -hmm. that is a, like there's a series of awards and trophies and, mm -hmm. and a citation from the Charles L. Bloxon collection at Temple University, as well as the Schomburg Center mm -hmm. uh, in Harlem, uh, all of which, of course, have many repositories of, of Paul Robeson mm -hmm. uh, material mm -hmm. and, and things about his life. Um, I also want to point out this um, Frances Alston, mm -hmm. who um, is no longer with us, unfortunately, but she is the former executive director of the Paul Robeson House and Museum, which is part of the West Philadelphia Cultural Alliance. Right. She purchased this house when she saw that it was in such disrepair, and, and she's the reason why we're all here, and okay. we're able to do this. So there's a um, photograph of uh, Frances Alston on the wall mm -hmm. here, along with um, a Vernica. quote that says, uh, the name of Paul Robeson just brings excitement to you, and this is what we'd like to do with the Paul Robeson Cultural Center, translate his excitement. Absolutely. And then you're pointing out to the lower right of that is on uh, Vernoka L. Michael. Um, her familial bond kept his activist spirit alive. She's another important figure to this uh, house. Mm -hmm. She was a neighbor and uh, called him uncle, actually. So she was close to the family. I spent many days in this house with Uncle Paul and his sister, Aunt Marion. That was his sister. I often drove him, a gracious man who always stood up to greet me, to shopping appointments, visits with friends, and on summer outings. And here we have, well, there's a picture here with him at the piano, although it's not, not this Not piano, right. It's right. a, a different model. Okay, yeah, there's, a, there's a large display about his uh, years at, at college and, uh, and at law school. A young scholar athlete, of course, was a famous athlete um, mm -hmm. uh, in his day, and then went on to law school, although he didn't um, ever practice law. He found it impossible to do so. Yeah, he, yeah. Did, he tried, and yeah. he did a little bit, but um, we, one thing we like to do with visitors is yeah. to say, can you, you know, there's a photograph at the bottom of this panel right. of his graduating law, uh, law student class, and mm -hmm. they say, can you pick him out? Well, of course, well, of course you can't, because he's the only black man in it, right. There he is over on the side. Yeah. Uh, and it also has, um, I notice here it says at Somerville High School, this is back in New Jersey, mm -hmm. Paul sang in the Glee Club and played the title role in Shakespeare's Othello. Othello, yes. Which is interesting mm -hmm. because, of course, he became 
famous for being the first black man to play Othello on Broadway, mm-hmm. although not in the professional theater, as we've discovered, because there was an actor that played it at the, um, the Hedgerow Theater, which we're going to talk oh about. Oh, yes, that's right. wonderful. We're going to get, oh, well, listen to the podcast, Harry, you'll learn so much. Um, but, so that's all in the front room. That's, yeah. there's amazing, yeah. now we're going back to a second room underneath an archway, and this would appear to be the dining room. Mm-hmm. Uh, back when it was a house, and there's more uh, large displays on the side. There's more of him as an athlete, as a football star. Um, there's large images of um, his, oh, of his childhood. Yeah, the Bustill family. Yeah, the Bustill family is a renowned family from Philadelphia, actually, oh. a family of abolitionists and Quakers. So he does have Philadelphia roots. He does, he does. The Bustle family, most descendants of the Bustle family are still living in Philadelphia today. Okay, now we're going, we're leaving the dining room, going farther back into the house, into the kitchen, which has many original elements. And obviously this is, oh, there's some there's old, <laughs> uh, uh, caloric, ultimatic, uh, stainless steel oven, which seems to be original to the house, mm-hmm. but I wouldn't, I wouldn't try turning it on now. <laughs> yeah. And the stovetop yeah. as well. Right. Um, this is here, this display is here, though this is not from the years that he was here. Mm-hmm. This is a recreation. And he very much enjoyed tea served in the British way. And this is something he got when Essie and he went to, Essie, his wife, and he went to London. Oh, and I like to picture him. On proper china. Yeah, a proper china tea. Yes. And this was where the nook was that he sat in the oh. mornings and would look out over the backyard. So, so, so even behind the kitchen, there's, a, there's one final back room mm-hmm. uh, with a very small room, which now has a sink in it. Mm-hmm. But apparently, once was sort of a little uh, breakfast nook yeah. with a little tiny window. Yeah. And it uh, was very important to him. And I think this was something, again, that was introduced to him by Eslanda. I keep wanting to bring her up because I'm wanting right. to... Uh, I'd like to tell visitors about the woman behind the man. You brought up the, when he was working as a lawyer and uh, a stenographer refused to take dictation from him because he was a black man. Uh And when he told Eslanda, when he told Essie about it, she said, that's it, you're done. Is that the totality of the public spaces or do we have other? All right, we're gonna go upstairs. So we go back into the living room, then up these um, these interior stairs um, with this lovely little left-hand turn here. Up to the see, second floor. You can see the, the restroom, the blue, sure. that was used. It's a house. I'm going into one of the side bedrooms. This room is devoted to Paul Robeson's work uh, with social justice. And one thing I like to do when students come in, actually when anyone comes, is I have scripts of his testimony before the HUAC. Um, hearings, and I ask, I invite uh, visitors to read them out loud. This is a cutting from them right here. Right. So there's a, there's on the wall here, it's, uh, there's a small uh, piece of green paper framed on the wall. It says, the testimony of Paul Robeson before the House Committee on Un-American Activities, June 12, 1956. The chairman says, the committee will be in order. Did you comply with the requests? Mr. Robeson, I certainly did not, and I will not. Mr. Ahrens, are you now a member of the Communist Party? Are you now Party? a member of the Communist Mr. Party? Oh, oh, please, please, please. Please answer, will you, Mr. Robeson? What is the Communist Party? What do you mean by that? Are you now a member of the Communist Party? Would you like Party? to come to the ballot box when I vote 
and take off the ballot and see? Mr. Chairman, I respectfully suggest the witness be directed to answer the question. You are directed to answer the question. I invoke the Fifth Amendment and forget it. What is the Communist Party? What do you mean by that? And then he goes on to say, what do you mean by the Communist Party? As far as I know, it is a legal party, like the Republican Party and the Democratic Party. Do you mean a party of people who have sacrificed for my people and for all Americans and workers? They can live in dignity. Do you mean that party? <laughs> yeah, and the, the part of the script we have, too, is that at one point, um, one says to Paul Robeson, you talk so much about Moscow and how you felt free there. Why don't you just live there? And he says, and it's a beautiful speech, actually. He right. says, because this is my country. This makes me emotional when I talk right. about it. My father, who was um, a self-emancipated, yes, enslaved right. person, at the age of 15, he escaped the plantation in North Carolina, came up north to New Jersey. He said, my father helped to build this country, which is so true. Right. And he said, I'm, I love this country. I want to be here. And of course, he got stuck here because they took his passport away. And right. when they did that, he was unable to work and make a money. I mean, he did make some money. But, right. um, and in this room, we have examples of the newspaper called Freedom, which he worked on with actually Lorraine Hansberry. Uh -huh. She wrote some articles. And, and the other quote that we have up here that we always want to read to people is The artist must elect to fight for freedom or slavery. I've made my choice, I had no alternative. And I, I think that's a very powerful statement. Um, Ossie Davis and Ruby Dee, I Ossie see there, Davis. as well as Harry Belafonte. Yeah, Ossie yeah. Davis spoke at his funeral. Sidney Poitier, yeah. Mm -hmm. But let's go um, farther, all, all the way to the back. To the left, you'll see his room. Right, although it does, it does have windows because it, it fronts onto 50th Street. Oh, it's beautiful. Mm -hmm. It's a beautiful bedroom. Yeah, it's, it's the back bedroom. So it's got, it's, um, you can see there's a large bay, three large bay windows in the back with lots of sunshine. You can see the line of houses extending uh, north of 50th Street, and and there's a large four-poster bed. Do we know if this is original? This is not his. I don't not his. think he would have fit, fit on it. It, it yeah. is. As a tall person, I can sympathize. A six-foot bed, it may, it's a lovely bed, but yeah. he would have not, yeah. uh, his feet would this have stuck is, out. I believe uh, is the only piece of these two okay. pieces are the only pieces of original right. furniture in this room. There's a, ch a bureau, a six-door uh, standing bureau, and then a small desk dressing table, uh, which uh, made of dark wood, which, which may have been here when uh, Paul Rosen uh, actually lived here in his final years. But it's it would have been a pleasant room. It's exciting to stand yeah. in this yeah. room. And I think um, when Francis purchased this building, you know, at the time, there was very little interest in, in preserving Paul Robeson's, you know, things, and, but right. he was, she managed to get a few of them. And there's now, a small General Electric uh, television set, yeah. which he may have watched. Yeah. Uh, television was around then, and, yeah. but in a large um, uh, RCA Victor radio, uh, which says uh, selected furniture original to the home of Marion Forsyth and Paul Robeson. Mm -hmm. So maybe this was a radio that he did listen to as well. In the next room, what we do for our visitors is show them scenes from Emperor Jones. Ah. Yeah. Right. Um, uh, Eugene O'Neill was quite fond of Paul Rosen, and I think um, Jazz is very proud of setting this room up. So right, so there's the a theater. lot in this, around the front bedroom on the second floor of the house. This is where most of the displays having to do with Rosen's uh, theater and film mm -hmm. career are. So there's a lot of movie posters, 
a lot of um, stills from plays, including one of him doing um, Othello with Uta Hagen in uh, 1943 on Broadway, All's Got Chillin' Got Wings in 1924, as well as John's new play with music, John Henry, and uh, which he did at the 44th Street Theater. Beautiful poster of him uh, for Othello, which he did with Jose Ferrer and Uta Hagen, as well as a picture of him in Showboat uh, as Joe, and uh, one of him doing Othello in London uh, with Peggy Ashcroft. Uh, yes, two photographs there. Uh, of course, they famously had an affair. Well, so did Uta Hagen. Yes, he also had an affair with Uta Hagen. Yes, I'll, I'll um, get into that. I mean, yeah. Essie had many things to say about that, I'm sure. Well, she um, was, she forgave him. She stood yes. by him. So, and he, he did it at Stratford-on-Avon, too, which is kind of exciting. Yeah. Oh, here he is in the Broadway show Softball League. That's just, Of course yeah. he would be in that. He'd be a, <laughs> talk about being a ringer. And then back here it's are more things films. that all films. Um, so Body and Soul, Sanders on the River, Proud Valley, uh, Tales of Manhattan, King Solomon's Mine, and Showboat, mm -hmm. right? Now, some of these films he wasn't particularly proud of, as I recall. I don't, I mean, I think, yeah. as far, from what I understand, yeah. none of them, <laughs> except right. for Proud Valley, right. which he was very involved in and was about um, workers in the mines in Wales, right. filmed in Wales as well. I, I want to go visit someday. But there was a, f a film with both he and Eslanda. Eslanda had a very short acting career, and I love this picture of them. I just, I think it's so sweet. It's part of the film. Mm -hmm. um, the one that was most upsetting was Sanders by the, of the River. Right. That, that was filmed um, by a British director. He assured Paul Robeson that... Um, the Africans in the film would be depicted with dignity and nobility, and, and Paul Robeson wound up walking out right. of the premiere, and he never saw it after that. And he was he enjoyed Showboat, but um, yeah. he got paid a lot of money, so yeah. I think he appreciated that. But he did not like the depiction of Old Joe as a lazy, um, and even the yeah. song Old Man River. He changed the lyrics, didn't he, a little he bit? He did. Yeah, he yeah. changed... Um, there's a lyric that says, I get weary and sick of trying. I'm right. tired of living and scared of dying. And he says, I get weary and sick of trying, but I keep on fighting until I'm dying, right. which is very different. Yes. And there's another lyric that says, you get a little drunk and you land in jail. Right. And he changed it to, you You show a little grit. Right. He also didn't like, yeah. I think the N-word in the darkies was also right. the original lyric. That's right. that as well. This, um, I like this photo here, is, is Paul singing to Canadian mine workers when he was not allowed to out leave of the, the country. country, right? So he had to so sing across the border. The border. Yes. Right. So he's he literally holding on to an obelisk at the border, <laughs> waving to people over in Canada and singing to them uh, the, because he can't go there, but his but his voice could carry. Mm -hmm. um, there's mm -hmm. some there's some sheet music for Old Man River Down mm -hmm. as well as several copies of his uh, LP recordings. Mm -hmm. Um, which he made many of, mm -hmm. um, and there's a large poster in the front uh, for Paul Robeson and the Emperor Jones with Dudley Diggs uh, as Smithers uh, from the stage play by Eugene O'Neill um, in, uh, looks like, in Technicolor. <laughs> yeah. uh, although perhaps that, maybe it's just the poster, it's pretty colorful. And there's a screen here, so I'm, usually visitors get to watch uh, videos, probably, uh, selection. Yeah. And then there's a small, over oh, here on the right, by the, what, a beautiful um, green tile fireplace. Um, there's a old-fashioned, um, crank-em-up, uh, mm -hmm. small, portable 
uh, record player mm-hmm. uh, with uh, the, there's a display of Paul Robeson's Sync Spirituals on it. Yeah. Has anyone tried to see whether that still works or whether that, that old needle might just tear up the record? Yeah, I, I probably it would, but yeah. I do know that um, he was one of the first singers to sing what was called Negro Spirituals or songs from the plantations, giving them the, um, the treatment that, they, that he felt they deserved. Right. He saw them as, as, as very hard songs. Groups. I mean, certainly, you know, Marian Anderson, another Philadelphia artist, so we'll need to cover one who's right here. The Six Negro Sox songs, uh, Lawrence Brown uh, in the uh, repertoire of Marian Anderson and Paul Robeson. And Lawrence Brown was his collaborator all through his life. He met him when he was young and he stayed with him. He, he actually went to London with him. There's a story about Paul um, when he went back to the theater. He, after uh, what happened with Sanders on the River and some of those other films, he decided that he would leave working in films and go back to theater. He did return in Othello after the long run of it, and he insisted, I love this story too, on having a dressing room with the chorus, and he would help um, the maintenance crew clean up at wow. the end of the night. So he was one of the last people in the theater. This was at a time when he really felt like his mission was for people who work. Uh, so I also noticed there's this photograph, and I've seen this before, of him singing at the Metropolitan Opera House in Philadelphia. That would be the one in North Philadelphia, which mm-hmm. is now called the Met, mm-hmm. of him singing a, a grand concert in uh, 1949. Here's another, at, the, at a progressive party fundraiser in Philadelphia in 1948. Right. He sings My Curly-Headed Baby to the Son of a Supporter. But he, he also learned 25 different languages. He learned to sing folk songs in the original language, including Chinese. And he felt uh, very close to Hebrew um, folk songs. And I would love it if there was a recording of all those. There might be some. Thank you so much, you so much uh, for, for having the tour. On on. We could go on and on, yeah. but we will talk more. Uh, but let's uh, let's end this portion of the tour, and then perhaps we'll talk more um, uh, in a more formal setting. To. Okay? I can go on and on. I'm <laughs> so inspired by this. That's our show for today. I want to thank once again both Janice Sykes-Ross and Terry Fimiano-Guerin for all their kindness, their generosity, and their wisdom, and for helping me so much to learn about the life of Paul Robeson and about how his continuing legacy in Philadelphia still lives and expands in a place 
where he once came in some sorrow and a lot of ill health to retreat from the world, now, due to the efforts of so many people who deeply care about his memory and his life's work, once again there is so much to celebrate and to share and to learn about. I'll put links to the website and to the many amazing online resources of the West Philadelphia Cultural Alliance in the show notes, as well as a link to our own website and a blog post about Paul Robeson in Philadelphia. Please check them out if you can, and please take a look at the link for our Patreon page, now open again, with for new memberships and for supporting our work here on the podcast. Thank you all for coming along again on another adventure in theater history, Philadelphia. Until